0: Jeremy you're listening to Blammo. How you doing? It's me. We're here. We're all here. Uh holidays are coming up. They're just just around the corner as they all say. And good Lord, I got um I got really sick the other week. I don't know if it was from New York or what, but man, I got sick. I I had the flu. No COVID, no RSV, but the just the good old-fashioned knock you out 102 degree fever flu. Um it sucked. <laughs> it was awful, but you know, didn't last that long. I still got a bit of a scratchy, scratchy voice here, but you know, we're we're hanging in there. Uh, speaking of hanging in there, geez Louise. Okay. Pete Nordstrom. Pete, Pete's just trying to be Pete. Um, not sure if you're familiar. Pete Nordstrom of the Nordstrom, like the store, like the, the, the tons of stores that are all over the United States. the, the like the godfathers of retail. I mean, it's God family of retail. Is that even a thing? God family? Who knows? Whatever. But uh P. Nordstrom's on the pod. And I'll tell you, this uh this was a good pod. You know, I mean I'm biased, they're all good, but you know, sometimes folks come on the show and they are they're in they're in podcast mode. You know, they're just like, oh, I'm here, I'm gonna put on my character, I got my bullet points, I got you know, and But he just came on and we just started chatting. And he went there with me. I mean, we went, like you know, like everything. We went all over the map. We talked about growing up in the retail fam, Steve Jobs emails, what the natural thing to do is, loving on Big N, old school versus new school retail, holding down the Integrity Fort, how luxury works, and the Beatles. You always got to end with some music. So I'm psyched for you all to listen to this. Uh, Happy holidays if it's before or after the holidays, whatever. Enjoy yourself. Here we go. So, do you have a pod? How how have you been uh how have you been enjoying this sort of podcast life? I imagine it's somewhat different than the standard day-to-day.
1: Yeah, it is, but I got to tell you in most ways it's been pretty good because it's not been onerous. It's not taken up too much of my time. You have a new episode every 2 weeks and um so I mean, do I spend a handful of hours a week doing it? Yeah, but it's 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 creative and it's fun and I get to talk to people that I largely know and am interested in. So it's it's all pretty natural and I like that. Um, you know, I, I think there was some trepidation on my part when I started because the advice I got was, well, it's only really going to work if you do it and you do it in the most authentic way and you're not trying to make it a marketing vehicle or something and, and trying to be scripted.
0: Mm-hmm, it says, mm-hmm.
1: It's got to be much more authentic than that. And my concern is, oh, I don't want to make it about me. And and my friend's input was, no, you're just a vehicle for it. It's not about you, but you because you're a real person, it makes it a more a a better vehicle to, to for people to tell their stories and so that that made sense to me and that's how I've I've tried to do it but um yeah it i it, found that it doesn't have to be about me to be good you know I'm I'm, I'm not looking for a personality profile about me when I do my podcast
0: yeah but there is something that you're able to do when you are the one behind the microphone because like yes you can control the conversation and I only say that to kind of gently push back in the sense that like it, it isn't about you, but I mean, I've listened to it. It is also about you in, in a good way because you, you know, you're Pete Nordstrom, part of the Nordstrom family. You, you know, you, you you guys have been running a retail store for like a hundred plus years. And I think when you think of the, this is a tacky phrase now, but like when you think of like the American dream, I'm air quoting, and 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 what you all have built, I think that story is, it used to be trite. And now it is very much mined for and looked for more than ever. Because I feel like we don't really know what that dream is anymore.
1: Yeah. Well... you know, I think the thing that we've all learned this last couple of years is that successful businesses have a real humanity to them and an ethos. And when you say it, it is about me in some ways, I mean, I think me doing it the way I do it, um, I think helps to reveal that while it's a big giant company and all the stuff going with it, these are, there are people here that do this job, and there's a there's yeah. a humanity behind it. And sure. yeah, and I think that's 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 because we've set it up that way that it's it's not a big scripted again marketing vehicle it's really just more trying to be authentic conversations and i think the people that like the podcast react in that way that you talked about that it feels like not only do they learn about nordstrom but to the extent someone like myself helps reveal the culture of nordstrom that that's good too
0: yeah and i think in a way it helps to connect with you especially where like from the outside you know if you google search your name there's Bloomberg profiles and New York Times profiles and things about, you know there there's there's an article and we don't have to dive into these, but like there's one and it says like the dynasty. I mean, holy really? shit like that mm-hmm. that's some heavy stuff that yeah. you got around your name. And I think finding a way to make it that you're just Pete, that you're just the guy who's, you know, part of the family but also trying to make a, a business larger than himself, I think is actually, a cool and noble thing to do. I mean, especially where, where people, you know, it's people really look at things now as like the haves and have nots. And and when you see people trying to be like, look, let's just agree on the fact that we're human, that we want to be loved. We want to be seen. We're better together than we are alone. Like there's, there's some real beauty in it.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, that's, that's nice of you to say. And um, yeah, I, you know, I think the biggest, some of the biggest mistakes I've made along my tenure of doing my job is maybe underestimating the impact of what goes along with what I say because of what my name is. And always, sure. it, it still takes me by surprise, even though I've been doing this for decades, that sometimes people react in a way that I didn't intend and I'm surprised. But, uh, but it, it is important that I'm thoughtful about the weight of what I say and the potential
0: unintended consequences of that stuff. Well, but yeah, I mean, I think of that as how impactful that can be positively versus like, oh, let's be conscious of, you know, because You know, I mean, do you remember back in the day when people would email Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs would reply to their email and they would lose their mind and it would be a four, five sentence reply. Someone would write something about how an iPod was so amazing and they got to listen. And it would be some heartfelt story of like my father who had always wanted to listen to this and we heard it again and we danced in the room. And Steve (laughs) Jobs would write like very cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I read his book. and I don't remember. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that was a thing that people loved is like you could and they never like publicly said like, hey, here's Steve Jobs email. But it was pretty easy to guess. And yeah. people would email Steve Jobs. And on many occasions, he would write back and that would be it would just change people's lives. Like, especially, you know, I, I, I used to work for Apple and, you know, I was one of the Apple fanboys, uh, past tense, but like I was, I was one of those people that was like, you know, would, would lose it when that sort of thing happened. And so it was like, when you got to see these, these humble interactions, it was just like, it was, it was pretty neat. But I think that was this, he kind of carved a way for this sort of C-suite level, um, way to talk to your consumers by just like making yourself accessible, but not shouting how accessible you are from the rooftops. Because he knew people were going to share that email. Well, you know, what's weird about that is, I
1: mean, growing up in this business as a retailer, you really understand that the whole thing is about customers. And you, if you don't make yourself open to input and feedback from customers and engage in that way, I'm like, you know, it's that's bad. I mean, it seems like such an obvious <laughs> yeah. thing to do. But this idea that people would be surprised if I respond to a customer or if I answered my phone or engaged in a certain way, it seems surprising to me that they're surprised because isn't that what you're supposed to do? I don't know. I mean, is it, I, it just seems like the natural thing to do. I, I mean, I think it's odd that people think, well, if you have a big job or a big responsibility that it instantly puts you into a different category of person that you now you're going to be, I don't know, whatever someone's vision of what a CEO type person should be. And that's standoffish and and distant from what's really going on. And, and, you know, it's not, it's, it requires a lot of humility to do this job. If you're going to, avail yourself to that kind of feedback. Cause it's not always, you know, Valentine's and unicorns and rainbows. I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> we, there's a lot of times we're messing up for people, but you know, you learn stuff that way. So I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is I, and when I say I, I would, you know, my, my brother and my cousin with the same thing cause they have the shared experience. It's like, that's sure. the only way we know how to do it. And maybe that's because we saw our dads do it that way. And it was just kind of the example was that, but there was no, Oh, you know, now that you have this job and you're in this office, you don't talk to customers anymore. Like you'd be amazed how often people say, me, I can't believe you actually talked to customers. I go, Well, that'd be like a horrible thing if I didn't. Like, if someone had my job, didn't talk to customers, that would like should eliminate them from doing my
0: job. It'd be terrible. Well, but the thing is, the people are shocked because that is, it is more the norm than ever. I feel like we're more Dickensian than ever in that <laughs> sense. And it's, sure, it is a little bit disheartening. But at the same time, I think it sounds like that's more ingrained in your DNA. Yeah. Because of, you know, Working at the stockroom when you were what twelve? Is that you worked at Nordstrom when you were twelve? Okay, geez, Louise. But like (laughs) you, you understand old school and new school of retail. And I think nowadays, when many people don't even have an understanding of retail through a physical experience, they people are just not used to a face behind the transaction and a face behind the interaction. And the importance of personal recommendations. I mean, the amount of people that buy from, you know, recommended for others who purchase this, it's in some ways a little bit disheartening.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, I think part of it also goes to the fact that when I was young, our company wasn't that big. I mean, it was a successful company and everything, but it was largely a regional company. So it wasn't like, I mean, people knew what Nordstrom was around Seattle, but if I traveled around, people didn't know what it was. And that was, so so I guess I, I just, I didn't grow up with it thinking like it was something super special and it was such a big deal that, that therefore put me into, I don't know, created a rationalization to behave differently than just what you would expect from any normal person. So I don't know, I I, I get that, that probably has a lot to do with my parents and the way they raised us too. So
0: yeah. What, in, in what ways?
1: Well, I don't, I mean, obviously I've had a lot of privilege in my life, um, but If I think about the way I was raised, the way my parents raised me, they went to great lengths to ensure that uh, we we weren't set apart in any way and and Mm -hmm. held up as being anything different or special or rationalized bad behavior because it it just wasn't that way. I mean, they you know, like as an example, I've told this story a lot, but um, the reason I worked during the summers when I was a teenager it was because I knew. When I turned sixteen, I had to buy my own car. My parents weren't going to buy me a car. I mean, they made that very sure. clear. It's like, look, we're going to buy clothes. You're going to have a house, and you have food. It's good. But if you want to buy stuff for yourself, you want to buy a stereo, or you want to, you know, you, you want to buy a car. It's like we're not going to do that, but we'll give you an opportunity to earn money. Mm-hmm. And that just seemed normal because, you know, I mean, I, that seems normal. But I guess that that's not how it goes for everyone. But that's that's how it was in our house. So you know, everything that we did, and I talked, you know, my brothers, myself, it was, there was a sense that we had to earn that. We had to pull our own weight, do our own thing. Um, Even though, yeah, clearly we we had a lot of privileges
0: too. How how did it make you feel when you realized that you could work, earn money. And then that money was basically discretionary for you. Like I say this because when I was younger, I, I didn't grow up with a ton of stuff, but you know, we had food and I never went hungry. So I'll be clear. It wasn't, wasn't any sort of, you know, horrible life, but there were things that I wanted that I couldn't get. And my parents were like, we, we don't have the money or like, sorry, you can't have a, you know, the PlayStation or whatever that is because we don't have the money. And th- for me, I was always close. And I remember at one point my mom was like, Hey, um, you know, know, if you want to go earn money and buy like you can buy these clothes yourself. And so I started shoveling all these neighbors' driveways, ah. um, and I earned money, and I was like, "Can I go get the clothes now?" My mom was like, "Oh shit, uh, yeah, okay, let's go." And it was the it was the best feeling I've ever had in my life because I, you know, I'm an air coil, like I bought that, you know, like I got, and it was it was just this sense of empowerment, especially as a younger individual, that I've carried with me to this day. Probably it's manifested in darker ways of just wanting to earn things, but like it's it's a very powerful thing. So I'm curious if you had that similar experience.
1: Yeah, I guess when you put it that way, yeah, I I think that's right. I I think of it more in terms of an appreciation for whatever you have because you've actually earned it rather than yeah, was yeah, given to yeah. you. Um, that that was my experience for sure. I remember my dad used to talk about things because I think everyone grew up this way. You always had the friend or the neighbor. Someone's like, well, they get to do this and they get to do that. Mm. And they have this and that. And they're going here and there. <laughs> and I had the same thing, which might strike people as odd. Like, well, what are you talking about? I mean, your name's Norse. I'm sure you guys went places, did things, had stuff. But there were people that I went to school with that had more things. And it seemed like right. they led a much cooler life. And I would talk about that stuff. And one of the things my dad would say is, like, well, I mean, yeah, that's all fine and well, but he said, it's in my experience, he goes, you're going to appreciate stuff a lot more if it's something that you've earned and done yourself. So I would say that like, in terms of things like travel, because, you know, it's a long life. You want to go to these places to do this stuff when it's your money and you're an adult, go for it. But your mom and I are not going to take you to all these places to do that stuff. That's not, we're not going (laughs) to do that. And, you know, it's like, what? And, but looking back on it now, it is true. I mean, the things that I've done in my life that I have a sense of pride about or feel like a sense of accomplishment or is because of the things that I've earned, not the things I've been given. And, um, I've been given a lot. i am again, Like I can't say sure. it enough. I've, you know, I've had a lot of advantages in my life, but I, I, I perhaps what I'm, I'm most proud about is are the things that I've earned along the way. And, uh, you know, it, it, you're right. It makes you feel good when you do that.
0: Well, I mean, let's talk about some of the things you've earned, because I would say the Nordstrom evolution, I know, I mean, it was, you know, your brothers, your cousin, you guys were involved in, but taking it from the regional to what it is now, I mean, is, is, no, is no small feat. That's a pretty big accomplishment that you did and that, you know, you and your family kind of do. So I'm, I'm curious how, how, what was the weight of that like? And like, how important was it to do that? Because I think it's not that like, oh, let's just be content to have this store. It's like, let's really grow and make this as big as it can be.
1: Well, I think the first thing is we didn't want to mess it up. I, it, we we talked about this a lot, but we didn't want to be known as the generation of Nordstrom's that screwed it up. Because by the time we were here, there was, you know, people liked the company. It was successful. Sure. There was a lot of buzz around it and what have you. And, and in particular, I think for the way it was done and the, the approach and And kind of the unique aspects that Nordstrom had around service and the culture and all this stuff, that stuff that my dad and his generation really made a thing. We just didn't want to screw that up. So I, yeah. I mean, we have grown it and we've done things, but they, they seem like the natural things to do in the moment. They it evolved in natural ways. I never felt like we had to take some crazy outside, outsized risk. I mean, if you think mm. about it, my dad and those guys, their generation, they had to decide to take the company public. And that was a big risk. And basically what was happening was the second generation of Nordstrom's wanted to retire, but they didn't have any money. Everything they had was tied up in this business. And for them to retire would have meant they would have had to keep pulling a salary. And the company wasn't mm. big enough to pay these people a salary if they weren't actually working there. So it was like the decision was: do we sell the company to you know Macy's or May Company or whatever it was at the time, sure. um, or do we take it public? And this is this is before my time. This is my dad and his cousin's deal. And they, I mean, I think the easiest thing would have been to just sell the company and everyone make some money and you know nice job. You know that'd been great. But mm-hmm. they had a sense of ambition and purpose and they want to achieve and accomplish some things. So they they said let's take the risk of taking the company public. And and that all worked out really well. But you know, part of going public, you you can't do that unless you've got a story to tell about how you're going to grow. And so that was the risk. It wasn't like let's just double down and you know being a better retailer in the Northwest. It's like we're going to go build stores in California and Chicago and Washington DC and you know New York and Florida. So that 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 was risky. And they did Mm -hmm. it. They had to really put a lot on the line. And in those days, every new store was a really big deal, I think, relative to the size of the company, that expense. And... That gamble, I I suppose. So to me, those guys took way more risks than we did. I mean, we, like, for example, the way the online thing came to be, I don't remember sitting in a room having a conscious decision of, like, do we want to actually sell things online or should we do this or not? It just seemed kind of obvious, like, well, it seems like we should sell stuff online too. You know, how do we do that? I don't remember there being some big decision about we're now at a fork in the road and this is going to happen or that's going to happen. It's just we were in the moment and just trying to be a relevant retailer and everything that included. And that, that meant, you know, at that time having a digital offer as well. So anyway, I appreciate you saying that. And if I look back on it, I think there's a lot for us to be proud of in terms of how the business has grown and prospered. But, um, I don't know, it felt like it happened in a very natural way and it didn't happen just on the shoulders of a couple of people named Nordstrom. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people here big company with a lot of leaders, a lot at stake, a lot involved. So it wasn't just about, you know, my brothers and I sitting in a room deciding what we're going to do. It it wasn't like that.
0: Oh, I, I don't view this as uh, like succession or anything. You know, <laughs> whatever. Um, uh, This I, this is not a Waystar Royco. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, you grew up and were a part of like old school retail and now like people would say, for lack of better term, we're in this like new school right. of retail in the sense of things being very digital. I'm curious, like, what is, what is the the old school retail mean to you and seeing that you've you come from both eras what do you think we're missing out on right now
1: well we learn uh by trial and error along the way there's a difference in values and practices and when okay. you talk about new new school retailing i mean that to me is more about practices than it is about values and it goes to what we talked about at the beginning you know Feels like the most successful companies are the ones that have a sense of humanity and authenticity about them. That's mm-hmm. what makes them interesting and engaging, and as an employer as well. So I don't know. It it feels like it's it's been important for us to to keep the train on the tracks in terms of what the values are and all that, and then the practices evolve, and that's what makes I guess you know to your way of putting it, a, a new age, new school retailer. But yeah. the stuff that we talk a lot about here is kind of the how you do things and. Mm And the why and all this stuff. And that gets those, those ideas are the same. I mean, about in terms of what you want to mean as an employer to the people that are working for you, what, what you want to mean to your customers, um, and the values and the, the culture about how a place works, I guess I have a, a big appreciation for that because it got brought into sharp focus during the pandemic time because it became a very transactional business in that time, right? I mean, everyone's right. on a computer screen and, you know, you're fighting for survival and it's just, it's a very tactical <laughs> thing. But then you emerge yeah. from that and say, like, well, what gives us the license to be relevant and to matter going forward? And, and that's when you take stock of things like, what do we mean to customers? What do we mean as a business? You know, what are... What what is kind of the soul and the ethos of what we do?
0: Well, and also I just kind of want to add, because I mean, I've been to a lot of different Nordstroms, which I'm sure you have too, uh, around the country. And there is a similarity that you all have done, but to implement culture on such a large scale, because here's the thing, you can be a small retailer uh, and, and you know, and read Danny Meyer's book and all these other things and like have your hunky-dory sort of, we care about the customer mindset. but. If you're trying to take that mentality and now implement it across how many how many stores do you have?
1: You got a hundred full line stores and how many rack stores? We just opened a rack store today. I don't know. Do we have two hundred and fifty seven okay. or
0: something like that? I don't. Know. It's- but like, but like implementing that that's a gargantuan task because quite a bit of telephone happens along the way, and it's it's tough to maintain some sort of level of quality and service. And yeah. I think that's something, you know, to to scale something and, and try to maintain the integrity of what the company is supposed to be across that is, I think, the most underrated stuff. And it's tough because it's not like you guys can really talk about it. It's going to sound arrogant. But when you're looking at, you know, it's like Coca-Cola tastes like Coca-Cola all over these places, you know, like McDonald's hamburgers taste like McDonald's. Like they're making a Nordstrom in New York, like a Nordstrom in Chicago. Like that's
1: pretty hard. Yeah. It comes up all the time. You know, particularly look at through the lens of a physical store stores. Like how do you get a bunch of people to operate in that same way? I mean, all the qualitative stuff that people like the subjective stuff that yeah. people like about Nordstrom. And I don't know. It's, for whatever reason, that that has gone pretty well. And I think it mostly has to do with the part of our culture that's been around a long time. That's an empowerment culture. So when, when we've hired people to open a new store in a new place and you know, bring a team of people in, um, there's a lot of uh, accountability that goes with that. I mean, you know, empowerment's nice and it's interesting, but it doesn't mean anything if there's not accountability. And and the people that have in some kind of pioneering way have taken out these responsibilities of opening new stores out there, mm-hmm. you know, I think they felt, they've always felt that responsibility, like, I want this to really, you know, reflect what Nordstrom's about. And what it's about is how people locally engage and, and do this. And it's not, it's not out of a playbook and you don't have to be Dame Norson to do it. it. It's more tapping into judgment and stuff like that, that I think is more universally aligned with people. Um, And so we've we've been fortunate to have really good people that took it personally. I mean, it it wasn't like I'm just working for some company and whatever happens, happens. Like they wanted to do well because it was a reflection on them. And um, because of that, we were able to further that service culture, maybe in ways that I don't know if people would have expected, uh, but it
0: worked for us. I think also, how do you do that without destroying the credibility of the brand, like the name? Right. And, and so I'm this, I'm not going to try to pull shots at all these other companies, but if you're a new company now, or even a newer company, and all of a sudden you have all these stores all over the place, it's, it's hard to make that, that value of that brand worth something because nowadays if, when we're all engaging, interacting with, with things just digitally, there's, there's not a history there. And so like for you guys, you're able to connect a freaking hundred years, right? And that you've been around. I mean, it's Walmart has kind of done the same thing, and I'm not even a big Walmart stand. Like it's just that, like there's, it's Walmart is Walmart, and they can exist in all these places, and it's fine. But you look at other companies, like I'm not excited about Amazon fashion. You know (laughs) what I mean? Like, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make that. So why do you say that? I, I think I don't know why I. But I'm curious why you say that. Well, I say it because I think. When when new companies enter into fields that they were never that they didn't become prestigious from initially, right? Amazon, I actually an Amazon books, a Walden books, that makes sense to me. But in Amazon fashion and also knowing that a company gets so big based on a specific rapid scale and growth that is ruthless. When you want to buy clothes, especially when you want to buy luxury. Let me yeah. be very clear. You want intimacy. Yeah. You want patience. You want authenticity. You want trust. You want all these yeah. things. And if you write books about how you operate lean and ruthless, that doesn't that doesn't equate to luxury, you know. And so that 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 for me is like if Amazon started their own fashion business and called it like I don't know, um, rug cool. I don't know some made up name. <laughs> yeah, maybe. They, they. I would, I would almost be more trusting than yeah. the something that's leading with that. And I apologize if you have friends at Amazon. No, I do have. I have very good friends in Amazon. And look at, it, oh, I mean, I've sure got a lot
1: of respect for what they've been able to comp- accomplish. I mean, what an amazing Same. kind of op- entrepreneurial story. I mean, they they created something out of nothing, and it's huge. So you know, those. I, but I give it up when you to those when guys. you lose
0: the brand, when you don't pay attention to the brand affinity, when you forget about that stuff. For me, and you're entering in all these things, it, I feel like it's a dangerous game.
1: Well, I think it gets to something that we talk a, a lot around here, and that is this idea that as an employer... And as a retailer for customers, if we get entirely transactional in the way that we view success and everything right. becomes about solving a math problem or something, it's, you, you miss out on a little of what you're talking about. And that's, I mean, we're in the fashion business, which is a hundred percent like a subjective thing. There's, there's really yes. nothing we sell that people need. We sell things people want. And so you, you just, you get into a different place. I mean, what, Amazon is remarkably good at is the transactional part of this business. You type in, you know, absolutely a hammer into the search bar. You're going to have an amazing selection of hammers at the best deal and you're going to get it fast. <laughs> but you know, pe- that's some people do that with buying clothes and fashion and that's true, but that's not a hundred percent how it works. So much of what happens in our business is about inspiration and discovery. And that's hard to do unless, you know, you, you talk about curation and you talk about the more subjective parts of it and you you allow for discovery to happen both in a physical environment and online. And, and we're not perfect at that. I mean, we got a long way to go, I think, to be better at discovery online, but we're working really hard on it. I mean, it's an important subject for us, but I think that's somewhat the difference of what you're talking about. There's yeah. there's the transactional nature of how business goes and then there's the more high touch part of it. And if, if in fact service is really the, the benchmark by how we get judged by customers, yeah, that, that lends itself to it. Now, I can tell you for sure, convenience is a way more important input in defining reason for service. Than it ever was before. Mm-hmm. People didn't talk about convenience 25 years ago when they talked about the best service purveyors in whatever industry. They talked about all the high touch stuff that happened. But then, yeah. you know, when all this stuff came along online and was so convenient, that is a great customer service. But it's not the only customer service. And people, depending on their need state at whatever time they're buying something, they might need something else. They might need a higher touch thing than just a, than transactional excellence. And so that's, I get, kind of comes back to the humanity part of what we try to do and have that be a seamless part of how we serve customers end to end. But that's, that's where the the interest is in the, in the journey is trying to figure out how to do that in a digital f-
0: format is, uh, yeah, that's, it's interesting. It's an interesting challenge. Well, because you also have to not carry brands, right? That's right. There are brands that Nordstrom doesn't carry. Well, but then it's it's not an open
1: platform. You should become a marketplace platform. You should just carry everything. And says who get them out of there. But there's, there's something that's (laughs) compelling about that. But that, but again, that's, I think that's the arm wrestling match. We have a little bit internally is like, is that our future? Is that not our future? And you know, we talk about that stuff a lot. We could do that and it, it might look like a different business. But if if what in fact is the biggest differentiator around our DNA is more this high touch way of how people describe service, do we want to give that away? I mean, do we not, or do we want to lean into that? And I think what we want to do is we want to lean into that as our biggest differentiator. And therefore, how could we extend that beyond just a physical yeah, store?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because like you, you can't compete with legacy. Well, just because you
1: you're old doesn't mean you're good. I mean, you know, there's plenty of old companies that didn't figure out how to be, you know, cause that gets my point about rele- right. relevance and inspiration and all that stuff. I mean, you gotta be relevant. I yeah. mean, just because that's, you're old doesn't fair. mean you're relevant.
0: <laughs> yeah. I I agree with that. I think it, what I, my, as I've gotten older, my, my understanding of what luxury is, especially from working, you know, in and adjacent to the industry yeah. for a while, you're like, Oh my God, luxury is, is, is so much is so rich. And you know, no pun intended, like the, the depth of the relationships, that the joy that you can have from experiencing it when it's done really well it, it you understand it like and i it's it's not always the the garment you know i mean the the experience of it all and that's something where like when i go into a retail store the scent of a store you know um the service all those i mean holy moly like th- yeah. those things mean so much to me. You know, it's interesting. I, I've spent a fair amount
1: of my time over the last several years trying to explain to certain certain constituencies in our company wh- how the luxury business works because it okay. doesn't really. It defies. <laughs> it defies kind of a common sense about how commerce is done because their yeah. whole thing is based on scarcity, right? It's like yeah, you can't you can't have it ubiquitously distributed or you would kind of lose the scarcity and and there's that high touch thing and there's and it, it kind of it flies in the face again of like. Like, what do you mean? If, if we're a customer and we want to buy all this stuff, why wouldn't they just sell us, sell us everything we want to buy? Why wouldn't they just let us sell it to customers in whatever way we want? And that's because, <laughs> you know, they're trying to build an image and, you know, Oh, how do I describe this? I mean, it's the desirability of that kind of product isn't just about how expensive it is to be made. It's 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 the story behind it. It's the craftsmanship, it's the design, it's the, yeah. again, the scarcity, all these things that you know, um, because you know, you're in and around this all the time. But I think it's hard for someone to, to understand that that's approaching it from an accounting point of view. You know, it's like, well, what do you mean? I mean, so yeah, I mean, being in that business like we are to the degree we, we are, it is a high touch. Thing. It takes a lot of time. It can be really maddening in a lot of ways, but it's really fun being able to connect customers with stuff they want. And the fact is, a lot of customers want, you know, the best the world has to offer. And that's what we try to do give it to them.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned hammers. It's like, when was the last time you got excited about buying a hammer?
1: I <laughs> you know, good hammer. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, you know. I like that. I yeah, like good I'm tools. Sure. I mean, you yeah, know, what the heck? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's an eye of the beholder thing, I suppose. But uh But it, but it's true yeah. it but mean, it's true across all different categories of stuff. There's always kind of the luxury version of whatever it is.
0: And um, uh, yeah, I guess there could be a Laura Piana hammer. I mean Well, I don't know about that. That'd be <laughs>
1: <laughs> Made out of the finest cashmere. I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah. We, we got the, this is the Vicuna rap edition. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe you're onto something. Who knows? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I have many talents over here. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I do want to talk to you about music and obviously the podcast too, because okay. you're a microphone guy. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're getting into more of the the podcast stuff. But one of the things that when we had first talked about is you're profiling other employees with your podcast. I know we touched on this a little bit, but I just want to call out that that is not normal. What do you mean other employees? And I think it's really beautiful. What do, what do you mean? Well, I mean, you, you talk about other people within Nordstrom. Yeah on your show right and i think that that's really beautiful and when you look at other shows that are hosted or run by ceos and 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 c-suite level people you know it's it's a fine line to where you make yourself accessible but then you're also like well don't forget there's this team here you know i mean having sam on and gian and and then just like people who are you know personal shoppers and stuff i think it's a I just think it's really beautiful. And I was curious how much of that intention did you have from the get-go?
1: Well, you're really nice to say that. I guess there's two things I would think about. One of them is just, it's interesting to me. So I think it makes me <laughs> engage okay. in an authentic way. But if I think about what customers like about Nordstrom, it's it's a, all these thousands and thousands of personal connections that have happened all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not many customers know me or my brother or my cousin, but they know all these people that are out there that in, interact with customers to them, that's Nordstrom. And so there's so many stories to be told about, I don't know, just about their mindset of how they approach the business. And, you know, I just get asked so much about our people and our team and how does it work and how do you instill, you know, that type of ethic into people and, and, you know, it's it's not so much about what we've done. It's about who they are, and I guess you know maybe being pretty good at identifying ta- talented people and well-intended people. But I mean, you mentioned a couple people like Gian and and Sam. I mean, those are interesting people. I mean, why wouldn't I want to yeah, spotlight quite. them? They're more interesting than I am, and it's like it brings to life what we do. And I think it also allows people to see more of themselves in this business because if it was just about me, I think the immediate thing is like, well, that's easy for that guy to say his last name's Nordstrom. I'm like, oh, how does that apply to me? But you yeah. know. I can sit here and talk all day long about, had a total normal upbringing with no entitlement and stuff, but no one wants to hear that or believe that. So, I mean, I think <laughs> the story of Nordstrom really is told most accurately through our people and and, and those, and then even through the customers and their experiences. Because a lot of what we've been able to do about perpetuating a service culture is through stories. And right, not because right. we wrote a bunch, bunch of stuff down a rule book, but because these things have happened that they go. Oh, you mean like I, I should take back those tires? Like, oh. And so it just kind of oh, opens, yeah, store, it just yeah. opens all the possibilities up for people to put their personal best into something and have their own fingerprint on it. Because you think about yeah. it, if we get the best of what people can bring to work every day because they feel personally invested and committed, I mean, how powerful is that? That's, I mean, right. no, you can't lose if that's what you got
0: going on. Yeah. So you have some other hobbies here. I do. Bit, bit of a musician. Right.
1: Uh. Um. Yeah. Well. I suppose. Yes. Yes. Oh. There's. There's a pregnant pause. Well. I mean. What's you know. On? I guess. I. I. <laughs> <laughs> my musician friends or people around the town that are real musicians, like. I mean. Re- the real guys. They may not be as. Uh, is impressed with my musicianship. <laughs> it's look at it's it's been an interest and a hobby of mine in a lot of ways. But part of what it's made it really joyful for me is that I never really had to make a living doing it. It's just something I've liked to do. Yeah,
0: that's that's the sweet spot. But
1: I've got a lot of friends that you know made their living at this one point or another, and you had a lot invested in that. And and that's a different that's a different animal. So I, I get to be attached to music in ways that it's it's a real kind of a sincere and honest approach to it. There's no there's no other calculus going on about how we can make money or you know i do it because i like it and i get to do it with people i like so.
0: but with the relationships you've had with musicians and stuff i'm sure you are you're a pretty smart individual and you've you've seen the the somewhat upheaval of the industry oh, yeah. over over the years going from where the labels had all control to now the streaming services have all control and then the labels having Three three sixty deals and and you know I'm curious as as an astute you know uh, observer you are have you witnessed any of these things and been like okay how how, how should I change how Nordstrom's run here <laughs> or what are the things that we can learn how we're championing artists oh and championing- my gosh well. I mean, your point about how the music business has really changed, um, being from
1: Seattle and and here when all the grunge explosion happened and all that stuff and being involved in the music thing, like a lot of other people in this town, I said, I'm going to start a record label. And I had a record label for several years. Um, oh hell yeah! Be- I didn't know oh, that. Yeah, and because there's people around here that did it, like in like in from out of nowhere, had huge success, like you know Sub Pop or or Bar yep. or I mean, there's all these these labels that did really well, and and I have friends that you know in and around this business. So let's start a label, and we did it. Um, but what I can tell you is that's a really hard business. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was hard, and so at a certain point we just you know stopped doing it. But it's almost like venture capital—you had to keep throwing, you had to right. go throw a bunch of bands out there, hoping one of them would stick. And our our example was always—I mentioned that record label in town called Barsook. and they signed Death Cab for Cutie, and that was their thing. And Death Cab stuck with them for years and years and years. And so we used to say, we just need to find our Death Cab for Cutie. We just we need that <laughs> one band that kind of enables the whole thing to work. And it turns out yeah. that's harder than it might seem. Um, so yeah, no, I have a real appreciation for the music business, how hard that is. But it, to your point about the, is there a connection between, you know, perhaps design talent, you know, as an artist and that we're
0: a vehicle well, for I that? Well, I think just how you, how you nurture creatives. How we nurture I creatives. Because I think one of the things that okay. labels have had, and so I, so I'll say this, I don't know how much you know about me. I worked for Beggar's Group. Oh, you for, did? Uh, yeah, like five, six years or so. Wow. Yeah. And, um you know and so this was 2008 to 2013 2014 ish um, you know so this was like the Adele heyday yeah. and you know all that all that sorts of stuff um, but seeing how certain labels you know one of the big things Martin Mills who is who, uh still alive and is like executive chairman of, of the beggars group he refused to sign artists on 360 deals because he was like look you know we, we can talk publishing if you want we can talk you know licensing but like you selling your merch you selling your stuff at your shows you selling you know your own ip like there was never going to be like a rihanna situation which for listeners rihanna was like one of the first big artists who had a 360 deal in which the label takes a cut of everything that they do and they basically own your ip versus your music and i think for him it was so important to try to have not just like a good relationship with the the artists that they signed, but also he really viewed it as because of how big he was, he could also try to set the example that we can be a label and do well and not, you know, be vipers.
1: Well, that's great. I mean, I think that's true. Um, yeah. That, I, well, it always struck me when we were trying to do the label thing that the best thing we could do would be a trusted and good partner for the band. And then if you know if something really happened with them, that we get pulled along through that right. rather than trying to control everything and control them. I mean, first of all, we were small. We, did, we didn't have the wherewithal to be able to do that. But yeah, I, but I can only imagine that, you know, the, the sheer existential crisis that was happening in the music industry just to survive because <laughs> it changed so much, right? It's like all of a sudden yeah. you're not selling CDs and records and stuff. It's streaming and it's just the whole economic, the whole economics of thing just changed so dramatically. So look, at it, I'm, I'm glad I'm not really in that business, but... Um- <laughs> <laughs> I've got a huge appreciation for musicianship and the creative artistry and everything that goes with that. I, I think it's a big reason why I've stuck with it and been in bands is it's inspiring to me to be around people like that, um, that have a real
0: gift. Um,
1: yeah. And it's, so I, I like it. Yeah. It's just, it's just something I've, I've never lost a, an interest in.
0: Yeah. Like music, like, like food and scent. I mean, it, it can evoke memories that like are untapped, you know, I mean, there's certain times I'll hear a song and it's like, I'm going to be stopped in my tracks, you know, like freaking Moody Blues came on the other day and I was like, oh, really? Shit.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, what, what song by the Moody Blues were you?
0: Uh, that like once in your wildest dreams, you oh, know, okay. that <laughs> kind of goofy sort yeah, of like, okay. you know what the DX7 sort of little synth line or whatever that's going on there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think music has that power for sure. And again, I just think about how it really improves the quality of life being attached to, you know, the joy and the beauty of, you know, creative things bring. And, you know, for me, music's really high on that list. For others, it could be literature, you know, it could be art or, you know, whatever it is. But I mean, that's so, I don't know. I mean, that's so much about Again, the things that bring joy in life is uh being attached to that for me. so i I don't know it's uh, I really enjoy it, and I feel grateful that I get a chance to you know play with good players and be around talented people and it's 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 really great. it's my orientation to it in a lot of ways is kind of like sports. I grew up playing a lot of sports and in sports, you you're always you're wise to be the worst player on a good team, not the best <laughs> player on a bad team. so i okay. I, I knew that from sports, and so I approached, you know, the band thing kind of like a team. Like, I'd be way better off surrounding myself, if possible, with guys that are much better than me, and I've been able to do that, so it's good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, and I think also music as a business is very, you know, I, I moved to New York 2005. With the goal of playing music and like trying to be. A star, oh, really? So what, you know, and, what and do you play? To, I play guitar and piano and mandolin and accordion. And I sing and wow, I do a bunch of stuff. That's great. So, like, yeah, I was. Yeah, my, my dad was a musician for a long time. And I that was very much like what I wanted to be, um, Wow, you know, and we did some stuff. We, we did some fun tours and got to play with people. I mean, that's how I got my job at Beggars. Like people that listen to the pod know this story. But like, I mean, it sounds like music from 2005 and seven where it's like, you know, <laughs> uh the 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 um purposeful indie rock you know th- that was a
1: like, very earnest
0: <laughs> yeah i guess you know it's funny you think you're an adult because you read like salinger you know when you're <laughs> like 18 and all of a sudden you think you you understand the world and it's yeah. like you just started paying taxes you know like you just have no <laughs> yeah. real idea of everything <laughs> yeah But isn't that like you had a bad breakup? That's kind of
1: the great thing about music is the the passionate way people will lean into that stuff, even if it's naive. But just the sheer, you know, energy and passion someone puts behind it is, you know, that's what makes it cool.
0: Oh, I mean, and I feel like that era is pretty much over because there's there's less mystique with some of these artists like the fact that we're still learning things about dylan and the beatles yeah. and it's like that would not happen if they were a band now which
1: by the way I, you had to have watched that beatles documentary that three part series did you watch that yeah it kidding? was Come on. Yeah. amazing and like even people yeah. that don't like music at all because i was never a big Beatles guy. I mean, I like him. I appreciate it. But seeing that and like, and having been in bands and watching that, you know, there's a familiar kind of a situation only done at such an incredibly high level. It was just fantastic. I don't know. I just, I love all of that. I I thought that was incredible.
0: It's more interesting to me is like, it's a really good example of revisionist history. And also, you know, there's a big redemption of Yoko in that. Peter Jackson did an interview where he said he was talking to Paul McCartney and uh, and, and Ringo, and they were talking about when George, you know, because obviously, spoiler alert, sorry, like George quits the band in the middle of a practice. And
1: that seemed weird though, too, because it wasn't very emotional. Because I mean, you know, you've been in bands and bands like, usually if someone quits, it's a little more emotional than that. He's like, oh, I'm just right, try I'm trying, I'm trying out, to please you. Out. I think I'll leave now. Like, what? I mean, that. And then all of a sudden he also laughed. I would like, wow, that was weird. Anyway, keep going.
0: <laughs> but they, they, both, they both had very different memories and accounts of what happened. Oh. And it's because it happened so long ago and they had told so many stories. And obviously, like, as that story has evolved, there's just a tiny, you know, uh, grain of truth that falls off of it. And to which, you know, they were telling stories of like, oh, Yoko is this big pain in the ass and da, 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 And it's like you saw it. And it's like, nah, they literally. And, and Peter Jackson's like, dude, I have hundreds of hours of tape like no that that didn't happen and it's like no like this wasn't how you know George left the band and they were both you know and Peter Jackson was talking about like I had to tell Paul McCartney that he was wrong about his own memory oh really you know Yeah. yeah and it was I mean it's very you know beautiful in a way but it goes to show you because you know nowadays like there is a 24 7 news cycle and someone's always on live or someone's sharing a story or a live thing of everything that's happening so it's it's you know because of that the whole world can see it but there's there was this mystique i mean and goes to show you for 50 plus years we had a certain understanding of how the beatles had evolved which obviously now knowing and it wasn't just a well-placed edit like it didn't happen yeah it didn't happen the way they said it did. And it's kind of cool. Yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah,
1: the other thing, and, and you're clothes guy, a fashion guy. Like It was amazing, like, their clothes that they wore, too. Oh, yeah. It was so cool. Oh, yeah. it was, You know, they were just Glenn like, Johns I guess I wore a t-shirt or whatever. I mean, like, they're getting yeah. dressed. And not because they were, I think, wrapped up in being filmed. It's just, that's just what they did. They they yeah, yeah that it was that part was super cool, too. Just the whole visual aesthetic of what was happening, amazing.
0: Yeah, especially because those guys didn't have stylists, per se. So, like, I, I interviewed Edward Sexton, who made a lot of the suits for the Beatles ah, uh, wow. with when they were doing Nutter's, you know, uh, Tommy Nutter and Sexton and all that, so on the row. And, you know, he talks about how, like, yes, you know, there was guidance, but, like, Paul and, and John and those, and those, they were picking out their own clothes. Well, it, you know, it seemed they like were dressing you, you had to have a
1: fur coat of some sort. That seemed everyone had yeah, a fur coat. Fur coat.
0: <laughs> well, you could tell there's, there's a bit of nouveau reach oh, with the Rolls Royce yes. and a fur coat. Like yes. you're like, what? what, what
1: are we doing here? I mean, like, Glenn <laughs> Johns and stuff. Like, you know, he was
0: know,
1: like all decked out, like in
0: the as an engineer, it was just really cool. <laughs> so where I'm curious, and I know we don't have a ton of time left, but I would much rather use this time for this. Where do you sit on the, let it be Glenn Johns mix? Because it is fantastic did you listen to it um no
1: well i don't know if i've listened to it aware that it was a different mix in any kind of side by side comparison so no is that so when we were listening to the stuff on that documentary was that his mix is that how we were hearing it
0: yeah well it was glenn Johns' mix but also they because of this they finally got approval which I don't know how that works, but they got approval to release Glenn Johns' original mix from the 1970s I, man, of, those, of those songs. I need to do that, because so, I don't know that I've actually oh, listened
1: to it consciously understanding what I was listening to, so I need to do that. Game
0: changer. Really? This is like, this is like hearing the Escher demos of the White Album for the first time. I mean, it's totally different. Uh, I mean, it's way more raw. You hear mistakes, like John's flat in certain parts when he's singing, but it's just like, it's so good. It's so, so yeah, good. Yeah, but
1: didn't it strike you how unprecious they were. So like they're they're recording and taking t- making takes. And you know how it happens in a yeah. modern day now where it's like, you know, you everything's on the grid and you know they're moving around in Pro Tools and everything can be perfect. Yeah. And they're just like, well let's just play it. And it's like they they didn't really care about how they had their amp set up or like what well, they're just sitting around. They're just you know like Ringo's playing with a towel on the on the snare drum and like they're just playing and it's really great. But it's not because it's perfect, but they're you know like the natural harmonies that those guys were able just to do like right off the cuff without even uh-huh. talking about it or practicing. I, was, I mean, that musicianship was off the charts, but yeah, I mean, you said there might have been some wonky notes or something, but to me, that oh, that's perfect. kind of the beauty of it. It's It, sound, it yeah. felt so real, even though it was done so well, because so much of what we hear now, and like my daughter says, I'm riding to school there all the time. She goes, well, that's auto-tune, is it? That's auto-tune, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. I think it isn't is. Isn't it heartbreaking? Well, when you think about how that pop music today is crafted, it probably looked nothing like those guys sitting around in a room all
0: plugged in and playing at something live. I mean, and even then, I mean, th- that was a big change from early Beatles, because when you look at, you know, Revolver and look, Revolver's a raw album, yeah. right? That was 68. cool. But that was still um, uh, George Martin into which, you know, George Martin it, the, what he was doing before the Beatles was classical music. So like, well, he's like wearing a white tight. lab coat there. I mean,
1: those guys, the, oh, those yeah. engineers, they were like, that's weird.
0: Yeah. And so there, there was not, you know, because they were working with Glenn because of uh, what the I think it was Let It Bleed or whatever Rolling Stones into which they were you know and even Ethan Johns who really kind of made Glenn's son who really kind of kind of rose because uh he did that Kings of Leon album yeah. um, AHA Shake Heartbreak right. which was basically all recorded live in a room you play the take and you take the take that was the best take and that's the song you know so it, it's like we kind of went full circle into which when the Beatles were more of studio musicians and they're making Revolver they were you know one person was going doing a bunch of different takes they were comping those takes it was on a four track they couldn't even do all that stuff then all of a sudden they're like f it this is crap we want raw energy we're going to play together but didn't it seem like you know? that
1: was a super calculated it, it, they didn't seem precious oh, yeah. about it which was surprising to me because every musician i've ever played with you know there's like you know they get very precious about their setup and their gear and their stuff and their sound and want to hear it back they're like oh that sounds pretty good yeah that was good all right what's what's next <laughs> That's like, and, it, it and it's just like the genius. greatest song that yeah. ever got played. They're like, <laughs> and no, and they seemed so nonplussed by it, right? It's like no one, put, no one said, "God, that was really good. That was amazing. Good job, Bringo or it whatever. It's like, yeah, okay, When's, what's for lunch?
0: Like that was fine. Yeah, <laughs> it was, uh, right? that was amazing. If, if the only thing I would do if I had a time machine is run back there and I would go find George Harrison, I would be like, "Stop smoking." Yeah. <laughs> be like, "Trust me, like we're we're gonna we're gonna get so much more music out of you." <laughs> Stop smoking. Yeah. Um, the fact of like, let's have a Siggy at the end of you know every single thing. You're just like, no. Yeah. Um, but I'm gonna tie the sonores for me, okay? Because look, here's the thing. At the end of the day, the reason why we love that so much is one because it's it's amazing to watch people who love what they do work, but two, I think more than ever, you just want things that are authentic. Like, and from clothes to, to, you know, like that was amazing to see because it was, it was raw. It was pure. It was authentic. There were mistakes were there and they were, you know, they just existed versus now I feel like how we buy clothes, how we interact with so many things. There's like a, there's a standard of perfection that we want. I mean, don't even get me started on the fact that like people get pissed off when it takes more than two days to receive an item. Like that's a whole other can of worms. (laughs) You remember, it used to be like,
1: if you wanted to buy something through a catalog or something, you would, you'd send a check in an envelope and you'd get there. And if you got it in a month, you had been psyched. Like that is, that's amazing. Yeah. And now I mean, if we don't have something to someone's house in two days with full transparency and exactly where it is at any moment in, in the journey, it's like, you know, we're just getting our head handed to us. So it, yeah, yeah. that that has changed a lot for sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, I've even caught myself doing it where it's like, man, I ordered that thing like two days ago. Why isn't that here? And you're like, oh, because someone had to put it in a box. That person also probably had to eat. You know, yeah. <laughs> that maybe they had to take a break, maybe they were working for a while. It's that's okay. But that's then where someone like, had to pick it up.
1: Amazon's really set the bar. I mean, it's created a level of expectation for people. Like we don't get compared so much to our direct competitors, like a you know, a sax or something like that when it comes to this. We get compared to like Amazon. Like, how come I can order something from them and get Ugh. this price and get it in a day no. and get you know, on Prime and they deliver it to my door? And they're not wrong. I mean, it is true. It, it but they have set the bar and we have to we have to live up to that.
0: That's true. I mean whenever people like talk about that I say well yeah but like w- at what cost was that like what just go ahead and search amazon warehouses let me know the <laughs> stuff you find like you know there there's 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 a human capital cost that people forget when when things are always experienced digitally which is why luxury is so incredible yeah. because you get to embrace the human capital versus shun it, you know, for convenience. But that—that's—I'm not asking you to weigh in on that conversation. It's just—it's, um, yeah. That's—that's that's my own personal. Well, you know, battle. the one I thing can, I can't I can... say
1: about it because I know we're running <laughs> short on time. But what is true, yeah, if you think about Amazon or Walmart, you'd mention them too. That people don't seem to talk about very much is that the reason they've been become successful is because customers like it. They are providing a service yeah. for customers that they are choosing. So if you are to say, "I don't want you," customer to be able to have that because it's, you know, it's this or that or the other thing. And I, I think it's better if you like, the, there was always that narrative around Walmart, right? They came into town and all the stores closed because they took all the business. Mm-hmm. But the fact is those customers chose that they had the other thing too. And at a certain point they chose Walmart for a reason and I mean, is it sad that, that, uh, you know, some people got left behind I think that's absolutely true. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I also come at it from a perspective, like, well, but customers have, when you give them choices, they're going to choose the best thing the best thing for them. And how can that be a bad thing? I don't know. It feels like you've got to put yourself in a position that you're trying to be the best choice for a customer.
0: Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. The caveat I'll add to that is when people are aware of how their choices affect others is when That's they right. reconsider their choices. That could be. And so I say this, I was at the DMV of all places today. All right. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> and I was wearing these um, these easy mocks, um, you know, and they were like, oh, those are the the woman at the DMV was like, those are so cool. I love those shoes. You know, they're amazing. And um, which is weird. Yeah, not that, the conversation you know, to a expect conversation. To have at the DMV, but that is yeah, good. Yeah, definitely not. And I swear to God, this happened. And she was like, well, how much are they? I was like, well, they're, you know, I was like, they're like, you know, 180 or something like that. And she was like, wow, that's a lot. And I was like, but I was like, they're made in America. I was like, someone with their hands made them for me. And I was like, and now I get to experience it. I was like, it's an American job. It's a, And she was like, yeah, you know what? I guess that, yeah. She's like, I, I do think I'm more into that. Cause I was like, you're wearing Crocs, which is awesome. I was like, but like, how are those made? Yeah. Where, you know, what, what's the practices there? And I think sometimes when people are more aware of how their decision affects everything else, then they're okay with, she's like, oh yeah, like all of a sudden 180 was too much. But then when she realized that another multiple, you know, Americans in this case were making it, she was like, actually, no, that seems, But you know what?
1: I think it's one of the the great things about advancements in technology, what have you, is all that stuff's out there. There's no secrets. I mean, if you want to know, if that stuff matters to you, it's all knowable. Like where it's made, how it's made, what's going on with this stuff. And so people get to make choices, which I think is great. They, you know, everyone's got their own value proposition. And, you know, if that's important to people, and I understand exactly why it would be, um, then that's great. That choice is available to them. But, you know, some people, that's just not their consideration set.
0: Um, yeah, I think, I mean, oftentimes I, I'm not a big Amazon guy, but I can tell you that I bought a bunch of stuff on Amazon. I bought paper towels on Amazon like an idiot because I was too lazy <laughs> to just go to the store. I'll admit it. Yeah. So, you know, but I, like, that's the thing where I'm like, you know, what? I should just go to the store. But I digress. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Pete, huge, huge pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much for taking the time and, and going all over the map with me. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to Blammo. We're edited by Amar Lal, our music by Breakmaster Cylinder, and we're produced by Blammo Media. If you like the show, tell a friend. Give us some good vibes. You can follow us on social media at Blammo Podcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com If you want more, join us on Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash Blammo, where we have tons and tons of our exclusive episodes, including exclusive shows, like blammo presents Derek guy and the triple J show featuring Gian and myself and John Moy lots of good stuff out there do whatever you want to do hope you all have a wonderful holiday and a happy new year we'll see you soon